It's me, David Webb, and here's a highlight from today's show on Sirius XM Patriot. Joining me now, George Beebe, Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and former director of the CIA's Russia analysis team. Uh, So let's dive into this, George. Uh, Russia, the United States, the Ukraine, I would say the West. And in what sense is this or is it not a form of proxy war? Well, I think it absolutely is a proxy war. Um, this is at this point all but explicitly acknowledged by uh, senior officials uh, in the United States and and, uh, and Britain. I think we've gone beyond the point of focusing on trying to play defense uh, with Ukraine against Russia's invasion, and we're now uh, openly admitting that our goal is to weaken uh, Russia, uh, to... Um, use this war in Ukraine as an opportunity to uh, deal a decisive blow against uh, one of our chief geopolitical rivals. So, yes, I think this absolutely fits the definition of a proxy war. So in that sense, and, you know, staying, I guess, if you will, within the intellectual realm, because that's all we can do in this type of discussion, uh, isn't a weakening of Russia uh, in the long run, if that plays out better for the various opponents and issues, whether it be military or economic, uh, when it comes to Russia and whether it's closer to them in the Slavic states or across the globe? Um, well, are you asking, is it in the American interest in the long term to weaken Russia? Yes. Well, I think the answer to that is it depends on what the consequences of that weakening are. If you assume that Russia is weaker and that as a result its ambitions in the world and towards towards its neighbors are much reduced, um, but it remains essentially stable internally and control over the world's largest nuclear arsenal um, remains intact, um, Russia itself doesn't descend into extremism or even civil war, then sure, uh, having Russia be less capable and less ambitious in the world would serve American interests. But if this weakening leads Russia to retaliate, to lash out because it feels that it's being fatally uh, confronted by the United States and the West, uh, it retaliates Uh, directly against the United States, and we get ourselves involved in uh, a military conflict between the world's two largest nuclear powers, I don't think that's in the U.S. interest at all. And back when the Soviet Union broke up uh, in its aftermath in the 1990s, we worried a lot about stability inside the successor states. Um, We worried about control over nuclear materials, Uh, chemical and biological weapons. We worried about these sorts of things escaping out into the world's black markets, Uh, terrorists getting their their hands on these things and using them. Uh, These are real issues that haven't gone away just because we managed to dodge those bullets back in the 1990s. So I think we need to think very hard about uh, potential 
unintended consequences of the course that we're pursuing. It may work out very well for the United States, but also we need to consider we're rolling the dice if we're really going to pursue the defeat of Russia by proxy here. They may not be willing to play by the rules that we think they ought to be playing by on this. They could well retaliate, or we could end up with with, uh, consequences that uh, might be far worse than the situation that we're facing presently. So now let's talk about, and it's a broad term, but the other course. And again, look, it's a fair examination to look at all the potential to game this out in a sense and see what it possibly is. Your points about a destabilized Russia could result, and it's no, it would not be new for Russia to sell arms, weapons, technology out onto the black market or deploy it to other actors that they've used in the past or currently use. So that's a side of it. Also, with destabilization could come a new rise, potentially, of a, uh, I would say, for example, a Gorbachev-like leader, which was different than a Khrushchev, uh, certainly far different than a Stalin or a Lenin. So all those are in there now. This course you've just laid out, one potential. What's the other course when it comes to the Ukraine? Does Ukraine, for example, get left to Russia and leaving Ukraine to Russia? What would that do in that scenario? Well, I think the notion that Ukraine will somehow return to Moscow's orbit um, is very, very unlikely, if if not impossible, under the circumstances that we've got today. Uh, Russia's military clearly has stumbled, uh, and uh, any ambition that they had at the beginning of this invasion to bring Ukraine as a whole uh, back into Russia's geopolitical orbit has proved far beyond their capabilities. At this point, they've got their hands full, even uh, consolidating their position in the Donbass, the the eastern region of Ukraine. Uh, It's not even clear that they'll be able to do that. So the notion that, uh, that Ukraine being lost to Russia's control is, is a real scenario right now, I think is very much questionable. But okay, so I'll 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 adjust that. Whether lost to Russians con- Russia's control or not, uh, the world and I'll use that broadly. Many nations are supplying Ukraine with weaponry uh, to fight against the Russians. We being one of them, and there's talk of more coming on board. If there was a pullback from supplying Ukraine, and Ukraine capably fought Russia, is there a scenario where it's not a win for either side? Either Russia is the, is defeated or Ukraine is defeated. And what does that likely look like in either case? Well, um, as I said, I don't think Ukraine is going to be defeated. And I don't think um, any of the uh, Western partners of Ukraine, including the United States, are going to uh, contemplate cutting off Uh, support for the Ukrainians before or after the fighting uh, is over in Ukraine. Um, That's going to be, I think, a constant. And the only question is, uh, how intense is that support? But um, I think Ukraine is is going to be able to count on uh, some significant degree of Western support, both economic and military, 
for you know, many decades to come. Um, so I, I don't think the Ukrainians are going to be in any danger of being abandoned by the West. The question here really is, um, do we have uh, a long-term uh, war going on between Ukraine and Russia and, and between the West and Russia by proxy? Uh, do we have some sort of settlement, some sort of negotiated agreement to end the hostilities? Uh, or do we have um, a long-term, very unstable uh, stalemate that uh, divides Ukraine uh, territorially and, and divides Europe uh, for you know, many decades to come? I think those are the realistic alternatives that we, we face here. But who, um, who would push for, and again, this is, this is actually a fascinating discussion. I, I like this. Who would, in the world stage, and I'm not talking about the individual necessarily, but just the general who, would push for a stalemate detente or decision on separating Ukraine if, as you say, uh, Ukraine will receive support and continue to fight Russia, which, by the way, if they defeat Russia, is a destabilizing factor. We'll call it back to scenario one, because Putin has adversaries in Russia. Russia is not fully united behind Putin, and we're seeing growing discontent in the streets of St. Petersburg, and those sons and daughters that won't return home will be obvious to the people. So they're destabilizing elements and even if there is a settlement, why would that be in Ukraine's interest? And how could that not be in a sense in Putin's interest more specifically? Because he will have achieved and set the stage for any other future interests of encroachment. Well, um, the incentive for the Ukrainians to seek some sort of negotiated settlement is to uh, preserve uh, what what will remain of their country after the fighting is over. Uh, it, it's quite clear that the Ukrainians are suffering the brunt of the effects of this war. Uh, it's being fought in their territory. It's destroying their infrastructure. They're suffering significant losses within their population, not just to people being killed and, and wounded on the battlefield, but people who are leaving, people who are are either internally displaced or are war refugees that have left the country altogether. Uh, their economy is in freefall. Uh, Russia is suffering under sanctions, no question about it. But the Ukrainian economy is um, on, on fumes right now uh, under the, the weight of this war. So, you know, when you ask why would the Ukrainians want to end this fighting, I think the main reason would be to end the suffering that's going on inside Ukraine itself. But isn't that short-term thinking in a sense? And your point taken uh, that there are people dying, the, the level of death, the destruction to the economy. However, there is support from the West, not just in weapons, but Ukraine could also receive economic support to stabilize its economy in the future should it be successful against Russia. But in the short term, while that would end the immediate visual of people dying, and unfortunately that is the circumstance of war, uh, in the long run, if the bully gets, or the aggressor in this case, Russia, gets a peace successfully for their aggression and you negotiate a detente, well, we've seen this play before. 
It played out in the train yard at Versailles. It has played out in other circumstances in history where it just leads to a next conflict because the aggressor, unless there is a change within the aggressor's country, Putin or others who may not think like him, but others do think like him uh, within the Russian quarters, may then take the next step. So short term versus a very long term, it is painful. It is bloody, deadly and ugly. But in the long term, not in terms of five years, 10 years, but the longer term for Ukraine. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that example of Versailles, uh, referring to the treaty that ended World War One, and was quite punitive toward Imperial Germany. Um, and John Maynard Keynes, as you may recall, wrote a very famous uh, treatise on this, the economic consequences of peace on World War One, arguing that excessively punishing uh, the Germans would lead to a reaction that uh, could be quite dangerous. And I think his words proved quite prophetic in that the uh, humiliation, uh, the economic devastation in Germany uh, that resulted from the way that war ended actually fueled radicalism inside Germany and led to much greater instability and tragedy thereafter. And one of the lessons, I think, of that uh, is that you have to be careful about how far you push uh, in your ambitions, uh, not just during war, but afterwards, and and make sure that you create situations that are stable. Um, And the leaders of Europe after the Napoleonic Wars uh, in the previous century, understood that they brought uh, France into Europe thereafter, rather than simply punishing and trying to, to cripple uh, France for what it had done. And that proved to be quite successful in uh, bringing about a, a Congress of Vienna and almost a, a century of peace thereafter. So, in thinking about how we deal with Russia right now, Uh, in trying to envision a post-war situation in Europe in which Russia is not incentivized to be a spoiler, but actually has a stake in stability uh, in in the uh, continent, I think is a critical objective we need to bear in mind. Are there times, uh, George, my guest, by the way, George Beebe, Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, That's a lot. I just want to make sure I get it right. Uh, Aren't there times when a victory is necessary to establish a path forward? Yes, I think there is. Um, There there are certainly uh, instances where uh, pushing toward unconditional surrender is necessary. Uh, The way we dealt with Nazi Germany in World War II, I think, was absolutely imperative. Uh, And it was clear that we had to deal with Imperial Japan in that way as well. Those, I think, are rarer examples in history than they are, you know, common examples in history. Most wars end in some sort of uh, negotiated settlement. Um, And another example of this was the first Persian Gulf War, uh, when Saddam Hussein had launched uh, an unprovoked aggression against Kuwait. And the United States assembled an international coalition to push him back 
uh, to uh, push Iraqi forces out of Kuwait back into Iraq. And we faced a decision then because uh, the Iraqi military was fleeing. Um, and we could have pursued them all the way into Baghdad, overthrown Saddam Hussein. Um, that was easily within our military capability on the battlefield. But we knew when to stop. We chose at that time to say, you know, if we were to do that, uh, this would result in a, probably a very bloody and unstable military occupation of Iraq. The international coalition that we had assembled would have fall, fallen apart, and all kinds of unforeseen consequences might have flowed from that. Um, and so the White House at that time said no. We've done enough here, and it, it, we don't want to do further damage to the uh, balance of power in the region. Um, uh, more than a decade later, uh, the second Bush administration got another bite at that apple and chose to finish the job that they thought had not been finished in the first Gulf War. We did invade Iraq. We did overthrow Saddam Hussein. We saw what the consequences of that have been. We're still feeling right. We saw exactly what you just laid out and granted hindsight's 2020. You have an occupation, an unstable region, a bloody conflict and so much more. And look, no one can game this out. I think that's fair to say with certainty. We can look at all the potential uh, or the, the possibilities there uh, and, and most, uh, and not most, but many of those uh, negotiated settlements throughout the history of man have resulted in a second and sometimes a third conflict. Uh, and in this case, we may be in that period where, I don't know, we look back someday and say, which one could have been the best? But uh, in the main thrust of this, let's examine all possibilities, George, and that's why we have you here. Great. Well, I appreciate it. Good discussion. I hope people are listening and thinking. There's never, there's never a clear path. Unfortunately, uh, that is the nature of conflict. It is. That's why these decisions are so hard. But you're absolutely right. We need to be considering all these possibilities and making choices, um, having thought about potential uh, unforeseen and unwanted consequences. That's a hard thing to do. Yes, it is. It certainly is. George, thanks for joining me. Good good discussion. Really enjoyed it. You can join me live on The David Webb Show, Monday to Friday, 9 to noon east, on Sirius XM Patriot 125.